Let's think back two weeks. I know, I know we probably forgot lots of stuff from then, especially with everything in the world going on with the coronavirus. But in our class, we, we left off talking about stateful servers. And we went over a couple of protocols, as we can see on the screen here. And I told you that those protocols are tied to specific ports. Ports are references for machines and servers so that they can point to the correct service. And certain ports are more specifically used for types of services and types of protocols than others. One of the big examples I talked about was FTP. FTP being on port 20 and 21. And that was a clever use of those two ports because one, meaning port 20, is done in UDP, so we can do a high-speed data transfer, whereas port 21 is our control port, and that port allows us to send signals, start this transfer, stop this transfer, start a new transfer, change the directory, do something different, and not interrupt the data transfer. So we can have these two things running in parallel, and that has a lot of advantages to it, a couple of disadvantages, but mostly it's very advantageous for us to do something like that. And then I left off last time with this question, this question of interrupting a service. When a server begins a transaction, is it possible to interrupt that and still have things work out? And the answer is maybe, and it's complicated, <laughs> like everything in this class. The, we, we propose two different solutions, one using a separate port that we basically prioritize our transactions, giving them two different ports, or we could use some facilities of the transport layer in order to send messages during that transaction. Again, both of them have their ups and their downs, reasons we'd want to do that, and reasons we might want to avoid that. But today I want to talk a little bit about two different kinds of servers. And we're going to break them down into these two categories, stateful and stateless servers. And I think we can pretty much generalize most services like that. Really, when we say the word server, we really just mean some machine, some computer that is serving, right? Giving some sort of service to other clients. How can we categorize these in, in ways that they help us define how we want to use them? And by calling stateful and stateless, what we really mean is, does that particular machine as a server, does it record and remember what it's done prior to where it is now? A stateless server has no knowledge of prior self, meaning that the state that it is in now is the state that it will be in and the state that it has been in. There is no tracking from one point to another. It just kind of repeats work over and over again. Or we might need something a little more complex. And that complexity would lead us down towards a stateful server. So again, think about states in computing. When we take a class like computational theory, we go into a lot of finite state autonomy. That's basically the same kind of thing we mean with a stateful server. So that server exists in certain states at given times, and it can move back and forth between those states. And the more important thing for us here is that it tracks where it's at and, and where it needs to go or where it has been. All of those things lead to good features, but also some other things we might not want. So let's focus for a, a bit on stateless servers. So stateless servers never keep accurate information about their status or even the status of 
their client and the requests that they're handling. They basically act in a very agnostic way. They only know what it is their, their function is, and that's it. There's a lot of stuff that we do today with servers that are basically in stateless servers. Our web servers typically are stateless servers. Unless again, we're handling some complex transactions, we don't want any preference given to certain connections over others most of the time. That, that might not be 100% true, but most of the time we don't give preference. And the same information is being hosted up pretty much over and over and over again. Even if it might differ with specific URLs, the request itself is still gonna be handled in the exact same way as every other request with, with minor differences here and there. So stateless servers don't keep any information about their client or themselves really. They don't record information about files or transactions when, they're, when they happen, a file gets opened and then it just closes after it's done. There's nothing nothing posting anything or recording anything. There's no real measure to invalidate clients' cache, right? Which again, could be good or bad. If we want clients to cache data so that they can more quickly retrieve it, a stateless server is not going to make any effort to make sure the client is up to date. They're just gonna serve up the information. So no information about your clients or, or your connection states are kept at all. Of course, those can be good things because they, they cut down on the overhead we need for our servers. But at the same time, they could also pose a couple of problems. But some consequences of that. Well, client and servers are completely independent. And again, that might not sound like a consequence, but at the same time, there's no validation going on whatsoever. So clients could exist with old data or out of date data or inaccurate data. And there's no way for us to verify that, at least from the server side to verify that without some extra things we need to do. So that right there could be problematic. Secondly, that when we do transition states, since the server is not keeping track of those states, it's possible that we could be out of sync. So the client, for instance, could try to transition from, say for instance, making the request for a file, which is one state to then receiving the file as a second state to then ending the transmission as a third state. One of those could get out of sync. Like say, for instance, the server could start transmitting because it received a request, but the client dropped a signal or missed something. So it's stuck in its own state. There's no synchronization whatsoever going on. So that's that could be problematic with a stateless server. And then of course, finally, and this might seem weird, but we could actually lose performance with stateless servers. And the reason is, is that with a stateful server, since we're tracking everything, we can actually make predictions about what's coming up next. When do I need to transition? When do I need to start a connection to transfer information? With a stateless server, there's none of that. Like nothing is being tracked there. So nothing can be anticipated, at least, realistically anticipated. So now let's talk about stateful servers. Stateful servers do the exact opposite. They do keep track of information. Of course, how much information is really completely dependent on the service that they're offering. Some servers that are stateful will keep track of their own state and the client state and prior states that they've been in. Others wouldn't necessarily go that far. They would just do current states for both. Well, however we, we arrange that, however we create that setup, basically the server is now being aware of the status of its clients. Where in a stateless server setup, it wouldn't necessarily be so. Again, this can be very good. We can keep our caches synced. 
We can keep our data synced. We know exactly when to transition and when not to. We know the status of each side. But at the same time, now we have a lot of extra overhead to make sure that happens. Overhead and not only on computational overhead, but also think about network overhead too, because information is going to have to be transferred back and forth quite quickly. So that network overhead also plays in there as well. It also becomes a little more complicated if we're allowing client-side caching to exist. If client-side caching exists, that means we also have to make sure that local copies are updated. And if they get out of date, the question is, how do we then handle that? What, what's the proper procedure to handle that? So there's a lot more questions we have to ask once we're setting up a stateful server, something that is going to track that information. Now, here's the weird news for you. Mostly what you probably will end up doing for your project is a stateful server. You sort of unintentionally are doing that. And the reason I say that is because each client has to keep track of where it is and then alert other services what it needs. So in some ways that is stateful. Now, can you get away with doing it as a stateless server? Yeah, you can. You can actually do it either way. But I think probably you and most of these projects are going to be coded. I'm probably going to see them as stateful servers, keeping track of states and where they happen to be at at that time. What files do you have? What files does everybody else have? How do I get those files from A to B? That's statefulness. That's, that's knowing what's around. That's not just handling requests and forgetting it. So here's a sort of one setup of servers and both their sort of irregardless to statefulness at this point. So let's see a common organization. here. So as you can see here in, in this, this sort of square here, that we have some client requests that enter into a dispatcher. Clients come in, they need, we want to process some transaction. They put it here through this request here. So they come in, they get queued in this first tier here. Now, once they get queued up, something, probably a server at some point, is going to dispatch it out to the second tier. And the second tier is where the data and the application is being handled. And more likely than not, requests are going to require some information, some data of its own to process. That data is going to come in through a third tier, which is the database system. And what I like about this is this is going to demonstrate to us kind of how this statefulness and statelessness is going to work. Notice here on this first tier, these dispatchers. So a question for you guys. The dispatchers, do they care about current and prior states? Or are they just handling things as they come in? Yeah, as they come in, right? So they don't care about what happened prior to that. All they care about is what's going on right now. This dispatcher right here is a great example of a stateless server. They get requests in, oh, they have a request, they have work to do, they do the work and then they stop. I'm gonna use this as an example. I, I, I didn't, hadn't fully thought this through, but when I think of a stateless server, I think of a fast food worker. As a fast food worker, if you don't have any customers, and you know, I know this isn't exactly true, right? Because there's other stuff to do. But imagine that you're taking orders at a, as a fast food worker. Well, if there's no customers, you sit down, you don't have to do anything. You don't have to worry about what customer 20 minutes ago needed. You just have to worry about the new customers coming in and filling their orders. So that's our stateless server. They, they, they act sort of like the, the fast food order takers. Somebody comes in, we've got to handle it. And then once they handle it, they don't do anything else. They're, they're done at that point. But that goes to the second tier. The second tier now has to worry about requests that this client 
may have made before this one. Because let's say I'm pulling in information in a database. If I string together a series of queries, especially if I'm using masking and queries, I need to know what the prior state was and the status of the client because certain clients, first off, might have different permission levels that they need, the information they might need. But secondly, the request might be tied to a prior request. So perhaps I did one query or a string of queries and they all go back to one location. Well, I need to know that. Well, that's part of being stateful, right? Stateful would know what happened before me with this client and what sort of information do I need to send back sort of all at once. So our second tier is, can be an example of a statefulness server. And then of course they make requests to the third tier, the database system. And this one could be either or. We could have our database system as totally stateless, as in we don't know, right? We just serve up information as it comes in. Or we could make it stateful and do the same as our second tier, store up queues, send them all back as, as we need them to, or as that information comes in. So this is, this is sort of a, an organizational example of both stateful and stateless with, with a big question here. So this, this third one could really go either way. We, we could be stateful or stateless. So one other reason that we, we might want to consider whether or not our servers might need be stateful or stateless is how they hand off information. Another thing we can think about here is that a lot of times as we send information through the internet, we make web requests, those requests bump through quite a few different places before they reach their destination. Each location that handles our requests needs a way to handle that request so that it's not only efficient and it's getting in and out as quickly as possible or as cleanly as possible, but also so that it ultimately reaches its destination, which is probably just as, if not more important than the efficiency of that request. So how might we handle this up? So here we go. We have, notice we have a client here and our client sends off a connection request to our server, but it has to go through this middle piece here, the switch. How might we handle this? And so this, how we handle it is of course, going to open up questions no matter what we do. Let's assume first off that our switch is going to be a stateless switch, meaning it doesn't know what's going on. It just knows this current information, this current request that it has, it's going to try to handle it somehow. So our client comes in, says, okay, hey, send me to the server. Hopefully that information is in that packet request. If we're using TCP, which it says here that it should be according to the standards. The switch, not knowing anything, just says, yep, I got this packet, comes in. I'm going to send it off to where it goes, handles it, and then forgets about it. In this way, it's very clean. It's very, very efficient. Of course, notice I said one thing there that, that is a huge assumption that that packet is correct, that that packet has all the information that it needs. Remember one of the, the rules about distributed systems, uh, I think I asked you this on the exam, the flawed thinking of distributed systems that the network is always perfect and everything works as intended. We should never fall into that trap of thinking that's always going to happen. So in this situation, what happens if this packet has lost data in transit? That is that is a perfectly normal thing to happen on many occasions. Well, that packet would fail. It would not be able to get to its server destination because the switch is acting very agnostically. It doesn't know. It can only handle what's in front of it. Well, what if I needed to assure that that packet got to its destination, right? What if I needed to add 
some sort of transaction assurance. For most normal web requests, it's not a big deal. You want to go to Google, you want to watch a YouTube video. Wait, your YouTube video timed out because of a bad request? Well, you just refresh and there's your video again. Not a big deal for that. But on a financial transaction, when lots of money is on the line and each request is each transaction for, for a bank or a financial institution, that's a huge deal. So they want to make sure those, those requests happen and that they're very error-free. Well, one way that we can address that error request or that error handling is by implementing statefulness. So we could say that now the switch knows this client and it knows that this client almost always goes to one place. Well, we don't have to have that information now in our TCP packet. We can assume things about this client and then hopefully make the correct assumption so that this information can get passed on to the correct place. And that's one example. We could do this in any, any sort of way, right? We can make any sort of normalized assumption about the information, about the transaction, but anything by imposing the statefulness, by saying that we now have tracking states and tracking where this information is going to end up and where it's going to go. So now we, we want to address one thing. We've, now that we've talked about stateful and stateless servers, we need to talk about how servers can now communicate with each other because of these two very different ways of setting up servers and information. So now the wider that we get, the more distributed that we get our systems, we have to come up with ways that we can not only contact all of those different systems, but that we can actually get our transactions done at the same time, or at least in similar time. Not only discovering who's there, so I should say discovery and then final connection to actually get information transacted. In the modern web, we use DNS or dynamic naming service, which is a distributed system that allows address lookup. It is our giant phone book in the cloud, so to speak. What's the IP address of some particular website? We use DNS to find that and then connect via that IP address. DNS handles the name and the translation to the numbered IP address for us. Unlike the old style, and I did demonstrate for that for you early on in the semester, I wrote up on the board the old bang addresses for the old ARPANET. Well, that was prior to DNS. They didn't have that sort of distributed naming service. So they had to actually specify the hops of where the, that information needed to go. And that was done uh, as a manual thing. Now we have DNS and DNS does that, that fun lookup for us. Saves us from that annoying piece of, of work that we would have to do otherwise. Or just as a practicality measure, it would be impossible for us to remember all these IP addresses especially when they may not even be the same IP address every single time we connect to them. So DNS allows us to keep that centralized database of IP addresses and names that they correspond to, and then use that as a lookup when we make that request. So DNS is, is very, very handy for us. DNS gets a little funky as soon as we start getting away from IPv4. IPv4 is our traditional IP addresses, especially when we look at you know internal addresses, 192.168.1.1 internal IP address for a local area network. That is an IPv4, version four is what the V4 stands for of that scheme. IPv6 addresses, if you haven't seen one, comes in a series of 16 hexadecimal numbers, or actually it can be more, I think it's 32 for the full address. 
but 16 is the condensed version of IPv6 address. And so it'll usually be like D6 colon, A1 colon, something, something, something. And for our IPv6, the reason that we are hopefully pushing to transition to IPv6 is because the, the number of addresses are exponentially greater in IPv6. We're already out of IPv4 IP addresses that are public. They're already gone. IPv6 has, it's, it's to the 64th, I believe, total amount of addresses, or maybe it's to the 128th. It's something really big. Uh, amount of addresses that we pretty much would be very hard pressed to run out of anytime soon. When every single device requires its own IP address, right? IPv6 was sort of the solution to get that. So and the question is now, how do I how do I have naming in IPv6? Because there's so many different addresses. It's not like IPv4 where, where there's a, a, some sort of reasonable limit. With IPv6, we could have new addresses for every single device that is ever connected to the internet. This microphone that I'm talking into could have its own IPv6 address. It doesn't, but it could. That's that's one of the power of it. So how do we keep that synchronized when so many different devices can now can now connect to and have their own address schemes. Well, this is a challenge for IPv6. Part of what we're going to do, and we're going to we're going to look at this, is through transparency. Yeah, I remember that funky word that we used, transparency, which actually meant the opposite, from my opinion, of what transparency means. As we implement more transparency, where this problem gets worse, this problem of IPv6 addressing gets worse. So let's see how how one way we could probably handle this. Let's say I have a mobile device. And my mobile device pulls out in its own IPv6 address. So this client actually uses two different addresses to do the same thing. So notice that this, this device, this box in client one, we'll just pretend it's a mobile phone, right? It looks like a phone because it's square like that or rectangular, right? We'll say it's a phone. So on our phone, we have an app. That app has some address that it believes is local. It's its own address. It connects to that through TCP. Now it will through TCP agnostically connect to the IPv6 address. So the app has no idea what the actual address is. It just knows that it's saying here basically. So those of you encoded, and I think it's Java. Java has a like a, a function called this, right? Like this object. It's basically what this app is doing. It's just saying this address or me doesn't actually know what me is. It just knows that, that I'm referencing me. So we get this IPv6 address through TCP, but then we also have the IPv4 address, which is this. So we actually have two addresses and we're going to reference both of them. Now, as we route this through the internet, the internet's going to have several hops. It's kind of not relevant for this particular slide, but note that we're going to jump through many different places before we get to our destination distributed server something here. So this server knows this IP address. It may not know this IP address. It definitely doesn't know the inter inner workings of TCP between these two things. And it most certainly doesn't, unless it has some awareness, doesn't know the app that's being used. It just knows that it receives a request from this external IP address. This external IP address associates then that IP address with this client. Regardless of whatever this IPv6 address is, regardless of whatever the app is doing, that external IP address now gets connected with this server. 
We could do the same with the second server too, or with the second client and server. Second client and server, same thing, connects the app to TCP IPv6 to their external IP address through the internet, has now association with that IP address and that client agnostic to anything else that comes in between it. Okay, I think that's it for today.